The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our scripture reading this evening is from Acts 2:42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. How are we doing this evening? Good. Good. Good to be with you guys. Uh, as George just read for us, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get to Acts Chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be hanging out tonight, specifically looking at 42 through 47. I would love to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in to God's Word together. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I should say that too. I serve as the pastor here. Let's pray. God, we are are grateful to get to gather with your people, and even in the midst of a a dreary, cold, rainy day, that that you uh, still reign, you still rule, you still uh, are good. When we can trust you and we can gather together, as the passage says, with glad and generous hearts. God, I'm grateful that your word is powerful, that it is anointed by your spirit, that it is true in every way, shape, and form, and that it's powerful for life change. And I pray that that'll be true tonight, God, as it's preached, it's proclaimed, as we think about and consider Acts chapter 2, and we think about this early church and these first Christians figuring out what it means to follow you together, Lord. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, convict us, shape us, mold us, encourage us, and remind us, ultimately, of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. We love you. We need your help tonight. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you heard me intro us with this formula from a pastor named Ray Ortland that we kind of said was going to frame up last week and this week. We talked about this idea, how to be a healthy church or a healthy Christian, you need two things. You need both gospel theology and gospel culture. And we said, if you have one without the other, things don't go well for you as a believer, as an individual, as a Christian, or us collectively as a church. And we said, if you have gospel theology, but you don't have gospel culture, so if you have all the right doctrine, but you don't actually live that out, then you have hypocrisy, right? You say all the right things, you think all the right things, but it doesn't actually make its way into your life. But on the flip side, we said if you have gospel culture, if you do all the right things, if you act all of the right ways, but you don't have gospel theology, then you have fragility, right? You don't have any ground to stand on. You don't have a firm foundation. But if you have gospel theology, right doctrine, right thought about God, yourself, the world, and gospel culture. You actually live that out, then you have power. The Lord speaks and he works in your life and in our church. And so last week we looked at gospel theology. We talked all about this, what is our foundation as a church? Jesus, the person and work of Christ, what he has done on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection, all of that. And we said that as humans, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we don't ever move past the gospel. Right? It's not this starting gate to the race. It's not the ABC. It's not this entry point, but it's the A to Z. It's what gives us and leads us to Christian maturity. And so we have to go back consistently to it. And so that, last week we talked about that, gospel theology. This week we're going to look at the second part of that formula, gospel culture. 
how we live, how we order or structure our lives corporately together as a church family and also individually as followers or disciples to Jesus. What should our day-to-day lives look like and include and be about? But to, to frame up our time tonight, I want to start by asking us a question, and that's this. If everyone in our church followed Jesus the way you did, how healthy would our church be? If everyone in our church followed Jesus the way you did, how healthy would our church be? If everyone in our church had your prayer life, are we a praying church? If everyone in our church viewed their money like you do, are we a generous people? If everyone in our church showed up on Sundays with the same amount of excitement and fervor as you, are we a worshipful church? If everyone in our church read their Bible the amount you did or applied it the way you did, do we have a church committed to the Word of God? Everyone in our church followed Jesus the way you did. How healthy would our church be? So in Acts chapter 2, we're in the middle of this story of the early church. The Holy Spirit has come. Gospel has preached overnight. 120 early followers of Jesus become 3,000. But now Luke does something really interesting. He's going to pull us out of the Acts narrative as he's going along this timeline. And he's going to give us sort of a summary paragraph to describe the church in Jerusalem. So he's going to kind of pull us out of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And he's going to give us this summary of here's what it was like to be a believer in the first church in Jerusalem. What we're going to see today as we close out and we look at these six verses is markers that defined the early church what their rhythms and routines were as a people. This might be a passage if you've grown up in church that you're familiar with. It's what people often refer to when they talk about a New Testament church. It's this Acts 2, 42 through 47. And what it's easy to do is it's easy to read these six verses and to think about the way that our church lives these out. It's easy to read these six verses and think about the way that your community group lives these out. There can be a temptation as you look at this passage that so beautifully describes the lives of the early church and turn it around and use it as a metric to judge our church or your community group. Begin to think things like, well, I see this, but they don't do that. Oh, I see, I see this, I see what we're supposed to be about, but it doesn't feel like, well, citizens doesn't do that. Well, well, my group doesn't live this way. It doesn't seem like their lives are living up to this standard. But I invite us tonight to flip that. I think it's most helpful for us to ask this question, to look at this passage and say, not, is my church this way? Is my group this way? But am I this way? Does my life reflect these markers? I remember talking to a pastor uh, one time, and he was sharing about this slogan that he wanted to make t-shirts for. So he had been having just meeting after meeting after meeting with church members in his church, and it was just like grumble city, right? So not about like important things like, hey, we have these concerns, but more like just annoyances. So he kept having these meetings with these church members and every single one sounded the same, just about a different issue. So they would say things like, oh, well, my group, they just are doing this or, or well, our church, I just don't feel like they're doing that. And he said, eventually he got tired of saying it over and over. And so he just wanted to make a t-shirt where someone would come into his office and say, well, they just that, or they won't that. And he said, he wanted to make a shirt that said, I am they, and you are they. Think about that. I am they and you are they. It's a funny shirt, a funny anecdote for a true reality, right? It's easy to look at this passage and go, the church should be doing this. Our church should be doing this. Our group should be doing this and miss the fact that I am they, that you are they. That If you read this passage, not to go, okay, citizens isn't doing this. My group isn't doing this, but rather go, am I doing these things? Am I stepping in to these markers of a life changed by the Holy Spirit? 
That's where we're going in Acts 2. We're going to see three things in particular. This is our really simple outline. Three things that this early church were marked by, that they were specifically devoted to. Three things. Number one, they were devoted to God. The early church was devoted to God. Secondly, the early church was devoted to each other. They were devoted to each other. And lastly, they were devoted to the lost. Devoted to God, devoted to each other, devoted to the lost. I know we just read it, but let's read it again, and then we'll dive in. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So verse 42 here starts out by saying they devoted themselves. So before we get into what they were devoted to, God, each other, the lost, let's talk about this idea of devotion. So the English word devotion doesn't fully grasp at the original Greek. So the original word here in the Greek is the word proskartoreo. Proskartoreo means to persist or to persevere or to continue steadfast. So when you hear devoted in verse 42, I don't want you to think like Greece hopelessly devoted to you. Anybody get that reference? Yes, thank you. One, fought over that in teaching team. I wanted to use it so bad. This song in Greece where Olivia Newton-John's like on the front porch and she's singing all these like hopelessly romantic things about John Travolta. It's also a really creepy TikTok if you've seen like the ones where they're like doing robots, classic millennials. You guys get the TikTok, it's fine. Uh, Anyways, it's not like that, right? This idea of devotion is not this kind of flowery, like gooey feelings within us. The idea of devotion is actually much more about discipline than desire, These things that marked the early church were acts they were committed to, not simply out of emotion or feeling, but something that they were going to do even when they didn't feel like it, even when it was hard, even when it cost them something. So it's it's this idea of devotion is much less, I'm going to call my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my spouse because I like them, and much more like I'm going to get up early in the morning to go to the gym because I know it's good for me, right? So when we talk about this idea of devotion, it's more discipline. It's all the stuff we talked about last fall. Right? Rhythms and formation, where we looked at prayer and fasting and feasting and Sabbath and all of these spiritual disciplines. And we said, these are good for you and they're going to grow you in your faith whether you want to do them or not. And most of the struggle is going to be deciding to do them whether you want to do them or not. The early church is committed to these things, persisting in them. So what were these things? Let's look at them together. Number one, they were devoted to God. They were devoted to God. The primary devotion or allegiance or commitment of the early church was in their relationship to God. They followed what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is what they were committed to. But there were some specific ways that they lived out this devotion or commitment to God. Let's look at those. So the first way, the first way they were devoted to God was by being devoted to right doctrine and teaching. Verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So when the believers gathered together, the 12 apostles would have taught on Jesus, on the faith, on essential doctrines like the resurrection and forgiveness of sins and union with Christ, all of these different things. And and some scholars actually argue, and I would agree, that Luke puts this first in the list because it's the basis by which everything else they're committed to is going to flow. So he says, first and foremost, they had to get this down. They had to be committed because they were all new believers, right? They went from 120 to 3,000. That's a lot of people that need to learn what it means to follow Jesus. 
And so the first commitment as a church was to be committed to thinking rightly about who God is, about what the gospel is, about who Jesus is, and how all of that actually impacts their lives. They needed right doctrine that actually fueled and changed them and led to right living. I think sometimes today in the church, we pit these two against each other, right? You have the people that are all about like action and application and right living, and you have the people that it seems like are all about right doctrine and right theology. And so the people that don't care about right theology are saying stuff like, well, why does that matter, right? Why does that theological nuance matter? Why do I need to know that as long as I'm living the right way and doing the right things? Then you have the people on the other side that are like, well, you got to know this stuff. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, we just got to keep more knowledge. We got to read more books and study more and and read that commentary and that thing. And and these things aren't opposed to each other. We view them as an either or within the church, right? You either, you care a lot about theology or you care a a lot about loving each other and loving the poor. And they're not an either or. It's a both and. Right doctrine fuels and leads to right living. If you don't have one or the other, you have hypocrisy or fragility, right? But if you have both, you have power, Author Jen Wilkin puts it this way. I think it's so helpful. She says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. They're not opposed to each other. They serve each other. We learn deep truths about who God is and what the gospel is and who Jesus is, and it actually leads to right living, right action. That's the first thing. Second, second way they were devoted to God was by remembering the cross. Verse 42, Luke continues, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. So later on in this passage, we're going to read about, he's going to say breaking of bread again, and it's much more about eating together in each other's homes. We'll talk about that. But this breaking of bread specifically is a breaking of bread that talks about and points to communion. This communal act we celebrate every Sunday at the end of our sermons where we hold up a little cup that has a little juice and a little wafer signifying that we all take time out of our Sundays to remember and to celebrate what Christ has done for us. They were committed to this breaking of bread. They were committed to this act of communion, this remembering of Jesus. All the stuff we talked about last week. They were committed to going back to the gospel time and time again. Centrality of Jesus, who he is, what he's done for them. Third, they were devoted to prayer. They were committed. Verse 42, it continues, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to seeking the Lord in prayer, not simply talking about him, but actually talking with him, which is prayer, right? Hearing from him and his word, giving back thanksgiving and praise and confessions and requests and needs to God. Prayer is going to be an ongoing marker. If you read the rest of this book, or as we look through it, you're actually going to see that the first three chapters are pretty good for the early church. So Acts 1 through 3 is like, all right, things are going well. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter preached. 120 becomes 3,000. And a few chapters later, 3,000 is going to become 12,000. Like, the Spirit's just blowing it up. And then things get really dicey for the early church. Like, it gets real sketchy real quick. And you notice, is throughout the book of Acts, there's this pattern of they're opposed for their faith or persecuted or thrown in prison or someone's beheaded. It goes poorly, and the early believers pray. And then somebody gets, they preach, and they get thrown in prison, or they get beheaded, or they get persecuted, and then the early believers pray. And it's just kind of this cycle. And what you notice is the early church is a praying people not because it's cool or in vogue, but because they're desperate. They have to pray. What other choice do they have? The Romans and the Jews, both sides are coming for them. They don't want the gospel to advance. They don't want the gospel to spread. They don't want God's kingdom to come on the earth. And so they're pushed and pressed against from every side. And so they have no choice but to desperately plead with God. They're a praying people because they know that they're a dependent people. They need him. 
This is called, supposed to be a natural part of our lives as well, an ongoing thing. There's verse after verse, I'll give you two. Romans 12, 12. Paul says this, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. To be devoted to God means we don't just talk about him, we don't just learn about him, but we actually talk with him. That's the third, fourth way. They were devoted to corporate worship and praise of God. They're devoted to gathering together. Skip down to verse 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together. We talked about this a ton on January 3rd, the sermon, Why We Gathered. Check it out, website, citizenscharlotte.com. Hopefully you listened to it or were here, but they were committed to all those things we talked about. Gathering together corporately, not neglecting the meeting together, coming together to worship and sing and hear God's word preached and proclaimed and to pray. That's the first one. They were devoted to God through his word, through the gospel, going back to it, through prayer, through corporate worship. Second, they were devoted to each other. They were devoted to each other. They were not just devoted in their vertical relationship to God, but also their horizontal relationship, right? The two greatest commandments, Jesus, when he's asked by the Pharisees, what's the two greatest commandments? He says, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the early church was about. They were committed with their vertical relationship to God and their horizontal relationship to one another. They knew that when God became their father, they also got brothers and sisters, Family wasn't some cool slogan that they said. It wasn't something they just threw out there to make themselves feel good about having a community to belong to. They actually lived out and dwelt in a family. Two specific ways. The first, generosity. They were devoted to generosity. One of the markers of their commitment to each other was their commitment to view their possessions as not their own, but for the good of the group. So we read in 44 and 45, says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's a shocking verse. I think if you've grown up in church, you've heard this all the time, but it's so shocking. They said, no, nothing that I have is my own. I'm going to sell what I need to. I'm going to get rid of what I need to, and I'm going to contribute. If somebody has a need, I'm going to step in and help. And if I can't step in and help, I'm going to sell something so that I can step in and help. This wasn't a requirement. It wasn't a forced thing. They were just all doing it. It was this gospel-fueled generosity where they understood we were guilty before God. We were sinners before him, but he sent Jesus in his generosity to rescue us and save us. And so because God has been generous to us, we can now be generous to one another. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And they just said, no, there's not going to be any needs. This is how Acts 4, later on, Luke gives another summary, and he says this. He says, there was not a needy person among them. We want to talk about a strong apologetic for the faith that we say we believe, what would it look like for our church to never have a needy person among us? Like what would it look like for our church to go, no, you're in trouble, I'm going to step in, I'm going to help. I, I remember I was um, in college, I was friends with some guys that were in a kind of a Bible study group together, just 18 to 20 year old college dudes trying to follow Jesus, which you can imagine uh, how fun it was. And I remember hearing from these guys about something that took place in their group. So they uh, had a guy in their group who was on his way to work one day and his car got hit and was totaled. He didn't have a way to pay for a new car, but he had to get to work. He had to pay his bills. He had to pay rent. He had to provide food, all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, instantly, one of the guys in the group was like, hey, we're going to take care of this dude. Let's figure it out. Let's pool our money together. Let's buy him a car. He's got to get to work. It's 20 minutes away. Let's get him a car. And so they sat around uh, without him in the group to talk about, okay, how much can you give? How much can you give? And they pooled all their money together as college guys. And they were like, well, we don't have enough for a car. 
So like, what do we do? And one guy was like, let's do a motorcycle. And so they counted it up again, went looking online, like, well, we don't have enough for a motorcycle. What do we do? And then one guy was like, hey, got it, moped. And they bought the guy a moped. And listen, here's the point. They said, hey, what we have is not our own. What I have is not mine. I don't need this PS4. I don't need this Xbox. I don't need to eat out six times a week. I can step out and I can give of what I have. I can sell this. And they were just giving as much as they could, selling what they had, Facebook Marketplace, whatever you did back then, eight years ago, whatever. And they were just getting rid of it and selling it, going, we're going to step in because you're family. And in this group, among the people of God, there are no needs ever. How beautiful would that be? If Citizens Church was known as a place where, no, you're never going to be in need. Listen, a lot of you guys are walking through some stressful years. Right? Some anxiety-producing years, rightly so probably in a lot of ways. Right, A lot of you are moving, you're uprooting lives, you're uprooting friendships and jobs. Some of you are giving up stable jobs to move here. Some of you are, are leaving friendships. Like All of that is real and produces stress, and I can't fault you for that. And, and what I've been trying to remind so many of you as we're talking is the goodness of God the sovereignty of God to take care of our situations, to to clothe the lilies and the flowers and feed the birds. He's also going to clothe and care for you. But also you need to know that you have a church family in this room who will not let you be in need. Just won't. That's what we want to be about as a church, committed to each other, saying, no, my stuff is not my own. I'm a steward. I don't own any of it. It's God's. And so what do you need? What do you need and how can I help? What do I need to sell? What do I need to get rid of? How can I step in here? The second way they were devoted to each other hospitality. They were committed to hospitality. Verse 46, Luke says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They ate together. How mundane and simple and ordinary and beautiful. One of the defining markers in all of this stuff, the apostles' teaching and and communion and prayer and generosity and all this stuff. And, And Luke's like, oh yeah, and don't forget they ate together. Like, what? We realize the kingdom of God is made up of little things like eating together. The kingdom of God it makes itself manifest in the world through this simple act of, hey, what is mine is yours. Welcome into my home. Welcome into my life. Not like in the Joanna Gaines, everything's beautiful, magnolia kind of way, but in like a, hey, stuff's dirty and messy. Come on in. What's mine is yours. My house is your house. And they did it. It says they did it with glad and generous hearts. They were happy to share life together. They were happy to live life together. This is kingdom work. Something I want to keep pressing in on us as a church, that we got to stop thinking about the kingdom of God being made manifest and showing up in our world like these big, flashy, huge things. The kingdom of God is in little things like eating together, sharing a meal together, a Saturday night chicken casserole. That's the kingdom of God. Or it feels ordinary, it feels mundane, but ordinary is not insignificant. It matters. They said, no, what's mine is yours. Come in. They welcomed each other. They ate day after day after day. They just lived life together. It marked them. It's kind of a little bit of an aside, but but one of the, the parts of this passage that is so encouraging to me in this season is thinking back to what happened just before this. Right, so right before this kind of bounce out summary statement, 120 people became 3,000, which means that everybody here is new. Right, everyone in this passage is new. They're new to the faith. They're new to the church. They're new to each other. They don't. They all came from different places. Remember when Peter gets up to preach the gospel? It's people from all these different areas and languages and all this kind of stuff, and they're all new. They don't have years and years of relationship. 
They don't have years and years and backstories and memories. They don't have all this stuff. And so they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to be family together and they're all new. I want to to give a a pastoral just kind of word of encouragement to you guys. I've I've said this a lot individually to you and so I thought it'd be fitting to say it corporately. Guys, we're new. And And I think our church does a really good job at letting citizens as like an organization or an entity be new. You know what I mean? So I have tons of conversations that I love where people are like, hey, I know we're getting our feet under us as a church. I know we're figuring it out. I know we're, we're brand new. I know we've been only meeting for a month, all of that. But I just, I'd love for us to consider this in the next, you know, eight years. And it's like, great, we consider, can consider in the next eight years. But we're so good about like letting citizens as an organization or as an entity or as like a church thing be new, but we don't actually let that grace and freedom apply to our day-to-day relationships. You know what I mean? And so it's like we let citizens be new and we let citizens be rough and we let it kind of get its feet underneath it, but we don't let the same be true of our interpersonal relationships with the people in our group. So if I can just encourage you, have grace for yourself. We're new. Some of us have known each other for years. A lot of us have known each other for weeks. We're new. If you're new here, if this is your first time, good to be here. You're new too. We're all new. And so what happens is, is I have these conversations with folks when it's, it's valid, where they're like, I go to my group and I don't know people as well and I'm not sure and we just don't have all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, have grace for yourself. You're new. They don't know your backstory. They don't know your history. They don't know that, that, that thing that they said, that offhanded joke, that, thought, that thing they thought was going to be funny. They didn't know that was going to offend you. You're new. They're new. You're figuring it out. And I love the, the encouragement in this passage is that while they're figuring it out, the newness of relationship and these friendships where they're making memories together, they're still committed to being family in the middle of it. And they're still committed to say, hey, even though we're new and we're figuring it out and we're giving ourselves time because adult relationships take time to grow and mature and develop, we're still going to commit to being family even as we figure out how to be friends. I want to encourage you with that. Have grace for yourself. It's okay. If you feel like your group isn't super tight-knit, It's okay. You feel like, I don't know everybody in our church. Like, that's okay. Have grace for yourself. Hey, we're figuring it out together. Figuring it out. Hope that's encouraging to you. The third thing, they were committed or devoted to the lost. They were devoted to the lost. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Mission, being a witness, taking the gospel around where they were, it flowed out of being devoted to God and devoted to each other. It was this natural outpouring. As they ate together, as they worshiped together, as they were generous together and to one another, God added to their number. Do you notice that? Notice who added to their number. Not they, the Lord. The Lord added to their number day by day. As they were faithful to love him, to love each other. That's where God sent them out. One of the the best things that the watching world can see that puts the gospel on display is the way that you love God and the way you love other Christians. That's what they were committed to. They were committed to God and they were committed to each other. We're going to talk a ton more about mission the next three weeks. That's all I want to say about that. Let's turn towards the end. They were devoted to God. They were devoted to each other. They were devoted to the lost. Let me land the plane. At the beginning of my sophomore year of college, I did something that I never thought I would ever do. I started running. All right, so this is what you understand about my life. I grew up playing sports. We were a basketball family. Loved it. We played baseball in the offseason to stay in shape for basketball. Like, that's just what we did. And I loved it. I loved competing. I loved playing. I loved the game. But I hated with all of my being off-season training. Right? Any other former high school athletes? 
Cool, so a few of us, you get this. So what you do during the season is you get to play and compete, and it's fun and exciting, and adrenaline's pumping, all this. But then during the off-season, you just go run for the sake of running, and I hated it. 7 a.m. workouts where we would just go run hill after hill after hill. And so I never thought that I would be a runner. But sophomore year of college, I became friends with some people who really liked running. And so they said, Tim, you're going to run a half marathon with us. And I said, there's no way. And they said, you are. And I said, okay. And so I signed up. Now, at that point, the, lo the longest I'd ever run was like a mile and a half, maybe two miles at one time. But I signed up, I trained, I ran it, and I had a blast. And here's the most shocking part of the story is that after that race was over, I kept running. And I signed up for more races. And I kept running, and I kept running, and I kept running. And I noticed this thing would happen when you start talking about how you like to run. People start asking you this question that I didn't fully understand at first, but then I learned. They would start asking you, hey, do you consider yourself a runner? And I was like, I, I run? Like, what, what does this mean? And I was like, well, a runner? Like, is there a difference between someone who runs and a runner? And, they, and I started picking up on, if you were a runner, generally that means you did a couple of things. This were, these were the, uh, the things that made you a runner. Number one, you had to talk about the fact that you run, much like CrossFit. <laughs> Second, you had to own expensive running shoes that you could not pronounce the name of. Second, you had, or third, you had to be willing to run in the freezing cold or pouring rain. So this morning, you would have been out. If you were a runner, you were running this morning. Fourth, you had to read running magazines and blogs. If you did those four things and a couple other things, I guess you were considered a runner. That was the difference. All jokes aside, there, there are markers of actually being a runner. Right? You can call yourself a runner all you want to, but the proof is in the running pudding. You actually a runner. You can say, I'm a runner. I, I do running things. But here's the question. Do you actually get up, put your shoes on, and go out and run? It's easy to, to read Acts 2, 42 through 47 and hear, yeah, devoted to God, devoted to each other, devoted to the lost, and say, yeah, I'm devoted to these things. Absolutely awesome for sure. But here's the question. Is the proof in the pudding? Are you, is your life actually marked by these things? It's easy to say, yeah, yeah, I, I run, absolutely. I, I do these things, absolutely. I'm devoted to these things, absolutely. And you can say it to your group until you're blue in the face. But the question is, does your life actually reflect these things? Does your life reflect a commitment to God's word? Does your life reflect a commitment to prayer, to generosity, to hospitality, to evangelism, all of these things? Is this a reflection of your life? Is 42 through 47 how someone would describe you? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to do some evaluation this week. Super practical application. Take out a notepad or a phone or whatever. I'm going to give you step-by-step step how I think it's going to be helpful and how you can apply this sermon this week. Five easy steps. They're going to be on the screen. I'm going to give you enough time, hopefully, to write them down. So what I want you to do this week, take an hour. If you have kids, switch off with your spouse. Do what you need to do. Get an hour. Get alone with the Lord. And I want you to work through these steps. Number one, write down the list of things the early church was devoted to. Doctrine, the gospel, prayer, corporate worship, generosity, hospitality, and evangelism. Write that list down. Hopefully you have it already in your notes. Doctrine, teaching, the gospel, prayer, corporate worship, generosity, hospitality, and evangelism. Step number two, take out your calendar and your budget. And I would include, it's not on the slide, but I would include take out your text messages as well, because that's a large way of how we communicate with one another. Take that out from the past two months. If you don't have a budget, we'll talk about that. Get a budget. Take out your bank statement, whatever you need to do to look at your financial picture. Take out your calendar, your budget, your text messages from the past two months. Everyone good? Number three, be honest with yourself and the Holy Spirit. 
Take some time before the Lord and do some honest evaluation. Listen, there's freedom to be honest. Jesus died for you, and he died for your inabilities, and he died for your shortcomings, and he died for your sins. So you have freedom to be honest before the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to ask this question. Does my calendar and my budget reflect a devotion to God, to church family, and to the lost, or to the modern-day gods of myself, my comfort, my security, and my control? The proof is in the pudding. Right? Does my calendar and my bank statement and my text messages from the past two months, does it reflect that I'm devoted to God, to, the, to my church family, and to the lost, or that I'm just devoted to myself? Here's some things to look for, tangible things to look for. How many times out of the past two months did you have non-believers into your home? How many times out of the past two months did you have someone in our church family into your home or your apartment or out to coffee? Other things to look for, how often did I spend time with God in prayer and scripture? How many gatherings did we attend in January? This is our fifth weekly gathering. Just look back, how many gatherings did we attend out of the last five? Here's one that hit me. Are there any credit card transactions or debit card transactions that weren't spent on me, my needs, and my wants? Did I use money for the good of others? How many times have you encouraged someone in the past two months? How many times have you prayed for someone? How many times have you confronted someone in love or spoken truth to someone? Fourth thing you'll do after you let the Holy Spirit work on you, bring conviction, is is where it does line up. Praise God. Don't move past that step. Sometimes we just want to go sin hunting. We just want to chase it down. Don't don't miss the step where your life actually does reflect Acts 2, 42 through 47. Stop there and praise the Holy Spirit and thank Jesus. Ask him for strength to continue. Ask him for strength to continue to take steps forward. And then five, where it doesn't, that's a chance for you to repent, to turn, to bring it before community and to change by the power of the Spirit. To get before the Lord and say, God, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be fragile. I want Holy Spirit power. I want to be a person of gospel theology and gospel culture. I want to know you rightly. I want to know myself rightly. I want to know the world rightly. And I want to actually let that impact how I live. I want to be committed to you, committed to my church, committed to the lost. Encouragement to you. I would encourage you to do this before group time. A lot of your group time this week, if you're in a community group, is going to be based around rolling through this. Hey, what would the Spirit show you? All that kind of stuff. So I would encourage you to do it before then. Here's where I want to, I want to close as we get ready to take communion. All of us are going to have something as we do this time that does not line up with Scripture. It's just a reality. We're broken people living in a broken world. None of us for the rest of our lives are going to perfectly be devoted to God, devoted to each other, and devoted to the lost. There was one person in history who was and one person who ever will be perfectly devoted to God, to the church, and to the lost, and his name was Jesus. He was fully God and fully man, and he died for our inability to be completely devoted to those things. So the good news of the gospel as you wrestle with and look at and evaluate your life is that, hey, yeah, there's ways that you're going to be shortcomings and you're going to strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to work on those things and to fix those things and to change those things. And also, you got to remember the gospel in the midst of that. That Jesus died for your sin, that he died for your inability, that he died for your weaknesses, that he died because none of us are ever going to be perfectly devoted to God, each other, and the lost. It's just not going to happen. So we strive and we rest in the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for us, that he did it perfectly so we don't have to, and yet he took our sins, and he died, and he rose again. That's what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. We take our little wafer and our juice, and we remember the body and blood of Christ, given and shed for us. And the scriptures say that every time we do this, 
Just like the early church, we're in a tradition that is thousands of years old that we too are committed to the breaking of bread to remember the good news of Jesus his life, death, and resurrection. So if you're in just a minute, we're going to take communion. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. If you're not a Christian, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I want to meet you, get to know you, answer any questions you have. This is one of the only things we would ask you not to participate in, simply because you'd be saying something is true about yourself that's just not yet. But rather than take communion, we invite you to take Christ, to believe that he died for you, that he loves you, that he wants to forgive you for your sins. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Let me pray. Take communion. We're going to stand and we're going to worship and sing together. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful. Thanks for Acts. Thanks for the Bible. Thanks for the early church. Thanks that other places in the book of Acts, we read about a lot of things they did poorly. And that's a beautiful example, but we also have this beautiful example of things they did right. And thanks for Acts 2, 42 through 47, that we have this first church in Jerusalem being devoted to you, devoted to each other, and devoted to taking the gospel to the nations. Lord, would you let that be true of us? Would you help us own the fact that we are they? Not to use this passage as some means of judging or, or putting some standard on our church, but rather saying, no, is this true of my life? Am I going to be devoted to these things? And am I going to own the fact that how our church is and how my group is, is affected by me? Lord, would you help us in our time this, this week as we get along with you? God, would you send your Holy Spirit to convict, to encourage, to shape, to mold? And help us not to brush over our inabilities. Help us not to move past the ways that we're succeeding. Help us just to rest before you to go, I can be broken more than I want to admit because I'm loved more than I can imagine. Help us to rest on the good news of the gospel in the midst of all of this. God, thank you that Jesus was perfectly devoted to you, perfectly devoted to the church, and perfectly devoted to the lost so that we don't have to be. We're freed by his grace to be forgiven and washed clean and made new and to try to rest in him in every way we fail. God, we love you, praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.